You're listening to episode 229 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the one, the only, the great, the terrific Mr. Daniel Feinberg, the Hollywood Reporter's chief TV critic. How's it going, Dan? It goes. Welcome back. Uh, I mean, we're all back. Welcome back, listeners. Welcome back, Leslie. Welcome back, me. Welcome back, us all. We we hope you didn't miss us too much last week, but we had lots of other things to be doing, so, you know. But now we're back, and we still have lots of other things to be doing, because there's still lots of stuff happening in Hollywood. Yeah, entering the fourth month of the strike, no talks currently slated to resume anytime soon as of our recording time. It's now Thursday afternoon, about one o'clock on the West Coast here. Uh, getting some uh, nice end of summer vibes here, but I know temperatures are going to heat back up again. I'm I for one I'm sad uh, for the end of summer because it's my favorite time of year but uh, I'm interested in what comes next with the strikes I'm really like the rest of the town if you can if you follow any writers on 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 Twitter the exhaustion is real and it's it's affecting everyone whether you're reporting on it whether you're personally affected by it everyone is, is ready for this thing to end and it just sadly as of right now, no end is in sight. If nothing else, though, I am I am pleased that the strikers and picketers will not need to be doing so in 100 plus degree temperatures in the valley for much longer. So ideally, I'd like them to get a deal that they're happy with. So they don't need to be doing it at all. But if they're doing it, I don't want them to boil. Yeah. As the strikes continue to linger on, we're going to start where we have been in recent weeks with a mini mailbag segment because, well, deal making has slowed. And I'm just presuming that all of our listeners read THR on the regular and, and can follow along when shows get renewed and canceled because there have been a few of those recently. Obviously, with the Labor Day holiday, there was a little bit of a news dump beforehand. So you saw some cancellations and a couple of things happening over over at Disney. So go ahead to THR.com or the, the Hollywood Reporter's live feed blog for full coverage. Number one. First up, mailbag. We've been asking you guys to send in questions to fill our first segment of the week since there are no headlines, except that, as Leslie said, there are actually some headlines, but we're going to continue to pretend there mostly aren't. Anyway, you guys have been doing a great job of emailing us at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the numeral 5 at THR.com. We thank you very much. Uh, for the most part, if we are not reading your questions, trust us, it isn't anything personal. It's just us finding things that amuse us in any given moment and doing our best to be amused or curious. Our first question comes from Aniko, who asks a question that I've also been curious about. Um, Aniko writes, AMC's Walking Dead spinoffs, uh, Daryl Dixon and The Ones Who Live, as well as Interview with the Vampire, have been granted SAG after a waivers and can resume filming. Leslie, why? Well, technically, AMC, which is the network that these shows air on, as well as the studio. Remember, AMC has an in-house studio, literally called AMC Studios. And it used to, remember for a brief spell, it was selling shows to third-party buyers as a way to keep some revenue going. But AMC technically is not a member of the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, which represents Hollywood's studios and streamers, but rather AMC is an is what's called an authorized company in that it is not among the studios and streamers who are involved in active negotiations with SAG-AFTRA for a new minimum basic agreement. It's all in the details here. Huh. Interesting to hear. I guess that makes as much sense as anything. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the fact that they have actors who are willing to, to engage despite with the waiver and everything, good for them. 
That's just, I was really surprised by that one. Our next question comes from Rich, who writes that he read something provocative on a political blog recently that insinuated that during the last writer's strike, when a number of reality shows skyrocketed, it helped rejuvenate Trump and may have helped him become president. Without getting into the politics of anything, how plausible is this hypothesis? It's it's a good question because it's a story that does keep popping up in social media, blogs, Reddit, all those places. It's the thing people like to talk about because if you're going to come up with a cautionary tale for what the potential downside of all of this could be, the last time we had a strike, it gave us Donald Trump, is a tantalizing thing to say. Um, I'd also first like to recommend here um, our friend, colleague, friend of the five, Emily St. James, wrote a very, very good piece for, I feel like it might have been Vanity Fair about this, basically debunking it. And while I'm not exactly going to say what she said, I'm going to say a fair amount of what she said, because it's true. The shortest version of the answer to Rich's question is that the, the last writer's strike, to quickly summarize what the argument is, the argument is the last writer's strike is the reason why we got Celebrity Apprentice, that The Apprentice was running out of steam. It was about to be canceled. But because of the writer's strike, Celebrity Apprentice was ordered and voila, Donald Trump is president. So, okay, the basic answer is no. It's There There are too many things about it that are, are wrong. You, you have to start with the very, very, very first part, which is that the additional seasons of The Apprentice, which included Celebrity Apprentice, had already been ordered five months earlier in the summer before the writer's strike of 2007 began. It had already been ordered and it had already been ordered as a season with celebrities. Period, full stop, that is the facts. Now, there's a lot of blurriness on the sides. So was The Apprentice beginning to struggle in ratings at this point? Absolutely. Was it struggling so badly that NBC was going to cancel it? Well, apparently not because it had already been reordered, but it was still it, it was not a marquee show at that exact moment, which was why they were shifting to a celebrity version is because they were hoping to rejuvenate it. So in the same way that the celebrity version of the show rejuvenated or extended the lifespan of The Apprentice, did it extend and expand the lifespan of Donald Trump in the public eye? A- absolutely. That, that part is completely true. What that had to do with the strike is a little bit sketchier. The show, when it premiered, probably premiered a little bit earlier than was initially planned because of the strike, because they needed programming. So probably the show premiered into an environment with less original programming, which also then meant a bigger audience for the show. So probably it was more successful. But the legitimizing of Donald Trump, who had become basically a punchline in the late 90s and early aughts, was done by The Apprentice. That was what it was. The Apprentice was the thing that that took Donald Trump from being uh, that funny billionaire who basically plays Donald Trump in McDonald's commercials in Home Alone 2 into being Donald Trump, the, the wealthy guy who is the paragon of all things business. Now, that legitimized him. Is there a reason to think that a celebrity version of the show with like Arsenio Hall, Joan Rivers, and much less <laughs> uh, legitimate people in it would have been legitimizing Donald Trump? Not really. <laughs> I, I, I don't think so. And and the show became less and less about him as it went along also. It was, it was kind of his kids had a bigger role in it, all of that. But it did keep him in the public eye. But with everything with Donald Trump, it's all about the 
how do you get from a show being on in 2008 and kind of staggering along in the ratings to a guy being elected president with a consistent through line? You, you can't. It's just not, it's not reality. But were there aspects of the strike that gave the show a higher profile? Yes. Were there aspects of the strike that helped the show get a bigger audience? Yes. Were there aspects of the strike that helped the show build up ahead of stream that allowed it to stay on long enough to keep Donald Trump in the public eye? Yes, but he kind of would have anyway. So it's you, you can come up with parts of the story that are true, but the bottom line of the story is not true. I think I think that's what the answer to the question. Our last question of the week comes from friend of the five Munib, who writes with premiere slowing for the rest of the year. Are there any shows that either of us plan to watch that we missed or didn't complete from the past decade or even before that? Uh, he recalls Dan binging Battlestar Galactica, The Shield and Breaking Bad in 2009 and 10 when he was writing his best of the decade lists. Uh, I can answer this first. Um, <clears throat> I recently binged Sex Education, which is obviously one of my favorite current shows, but I finally convinced my wife to actually watch the show. So we started from season one and uh, we're almost done with the final season screeners. And next up for me is Reservation Dogs, which I'm woefully behind on, as well as This Fool, which I'm also embarrassingly behind on. But I love both shows and I want to finish them both. Well, you definitely, 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 definitely need to catch up on Reservation Dogs. That one's that one's easy. <laughs> yeah, that's like fear of like you breaking up with me as a podcast co-host if I don't finish that one. Right. You know, what, what What can you do? And it's also, it's not a Brockmire situation where it's a show that was really made for you and you, sh- and you needed to watch it because you needed to watch it. So it's just the best show on TV. But anywho. Um, okay, so my version- Any hoodles. See what I did there, Nate? I do. Part of the problem is that there, there's still plenty of TV. And- <laughs> And so I actually have been catching up on things. And unfortunately, it's meant I've been falling behind on the things that I actually need to be watching. Like, for example, there will be no review of the new season of The Morning Show in this podcast because I have not yet watched the new season of The Morning Show because The Morning Show causes me pain. And instead, I've been choosing to watch shows that don't cause me pain. <laughs> but that's as much a preference thing as anything else. I've been catching because there's been a tiny bit less programming and it's only been a tiny bit less so far. I've been able to catch up on some things. There will be no review of Morning Show in this podcast because I'm not ahead on that, but there will be a review of Welcome to Wrexham season two. And that's in part because I watched all of season one of Welcome to Wrexham two weeks ago. And Welcome to Wrexham is great. And I would say, Leslie, you should watch Welcome to Wrexham. It's a lot of fun. It really just is. A, it is. It, it's just a tremendously fun. You watched the whole first season? Um, I've watched most of the first season. Yeah, it's just a it's just a really good show. But anyway, I'll talk I'll talk more about that later. But so that's that's one example. Um, I watched uh, enough people I trust, including both um, friend of the five Alan Sepinwall and friend of the five Angie Hahn. Uh, both said nice enough things about killing it on Peacock that I watched both seasons of that in a week. Uh, and I really enjoyed that. It's a, a scathing, uncomfortable kind of manic deconstruction of the American dream. Uh, and I really enjoyed that for an upcoming project that uh, can't spoil yet, but 
it's still an upcoming project. Uh, I watched nearly all of the three seasons of Southside, which is all available on Max. And I thought that was a, a really terrific show. And I felt bad about not having watched it previously. Really and truly one of the smartest uh, most sharply written comedies in in recent years. Just a, a really good show. So those are those are the three shows that I've been catching up on. Perhaps in some cases at the expense of things I needed to be watching for other parts of work. But uh, but yeah. Um, so that was a fun question. It, it is. And look, it, I, we haven't yet reached a desperation point, uh, but. Definitely, we've probably reached a point at which there are fewer things on a weekly basis that are kind of there for everybody, which might mean that there's something you're looking forward to this week, but maybe there's nothing you're looking forward to next week. Incidentally, this might be a tease for our next segment. It means that there might be a week or two where you find yourself without the thing you want to watch and... Hopefully that's then when you can go back to previous Critics Corner segments and and find something I raved about that wasn't hitting you at that exact moment, but might hit you at a later moment. Yeah, and I, I don't think you mean your, our next segment, but the one after. But, I don't know what order things are on. A later, se- let's say a later segment. As Dan said at the top of this one, if you have questions you'd like to hear us address on future episodes, and we're going to need these for a while. Go ahead and drop us an email at TV's top five. That's a numeral five at THR as in the Hollywood Reporter.com. Number two. Up next, we return to the strike zone where, as always, there are developments. Leslie, what was this week's big strike-related news? Well, this week's big strike-related news is that Warner Brothers has suspended, and that is a keyword, suspended deals for its top showrunners. So Warner Brothers this week suspended J.J. Abrams' Bad Robot, Greg Berlanti's Berlanti Productions, Bill Lawrence's Dozer, and Mindy Kaling's Banner. These follow the suspensions of Chuck Lorre's deal, which was quietly suspended in May, a week into the strike, and John Wells' deal, which was suspended in June. So these are the biggest hitters that Warner Brothers has in its creative stable, at least on the TV side. And we're going to talk about why this matters and why this happened. So the first thing to note is this is a suspension. It is not force majeure. It is not deals being canceled outright. It is not deals being canceled because of the strike. It is deals hitting pause. What this is, is Warner Brothers saying, hey, we know that all of you have multiple shows in development in various stages, whether it was shows in post that they were, that these guys were contributing and their, and their big teams on the, of their production companies were contributing work to whether it was post-production and things that were permitted and encouraged by the WGA to keep going that are not considered writing duties. So the studios were saying, keep going, keep doing this part of the job that you are able to and we will continue to pay you and your employees and and overhead for you, for wherever whatever facility you're renting. That has stopped for these producers. And this is Warner Brothers saying, well, Labor Day was always going to be a benchmark. There was early in the strike, there were rumors that this would be over by Labor Day. We can obviously see that that's not happening. And this is the studio saying, we don't need to keep paying you anymore to, to do this. This is yet another cost-saving measure. So they're basically piling up all of the cash now at this point. The other 
angle of this, and this is something that I'm still reporting, I should note, as we record this, but the other angle of this is why weren't these suspended right away? So Lori and Wells, we know, were suspended pretty immediately. Wells is a former uh, head honcho at the WGA. Lori uh, more than likely took a very, very pro WGA point of view and said, I'm not going to do any of these in the weeds type things because I can't separate writing from non-writing work. These other production companies continued to work. And part of it too was the studio chief here in in Warner Brothers case, it's Channing Dungy saying, trying to support her biggest assets, right? She's pr- still relatively new to the studio after taking over for Peter Roth a couple years ago. But these are the, the most important relationships that she has, that the studio has. And these are the, the key people that when the strikes are over, that she's going to go to first saying, what can we get up and running? How soon? When can I get new new episodes? Because Warner Brothers is an independent studio, so to, so to speak, in that they don't really have a broadcast network. They don't have any revenue coming in until they sell or deliver episodes. No episodes are being delivered. No seasons are being delivered. No money is coming in from that. So this is the studio cutting those deals right now. Well, not cutting, but suspending. <laughs> Because it's a financial move, and obviously there's a there's you know a lot of uh, chatter on social media about the optics of this and this being yet another ploy by the AMPTP to spook writers into accepting a lesser deal or to you know to to try to get these top showrunners to encourage uh, the guild to, to take a deal and end this sooner rather than later. That's not happening. So Berlanti's been out on the picket lines. J.J. Abrams has been out on the picket lines. I can't imagine that that's, that that's happening, at least from what I'm hearing. The big question, and this is, again, what I've been reporting is, who else has been impacted? What other deals remain active? What I've been told so far is that some deals, if you have shows that are hypothetically in post-production, I think Fallout may be a good, a good example. There are things that Lisa Joy and Jonah Nolan, who are based at, at Amazon, and Fallout is a big priority for them. There are things that those two showrunners can continue to do that is not considered writing, that Amazon is going to continue to pay them to do because that show is a big priority and they want to get that show up and out as soon as possible, especially in light of the, the slower content pipeline. Think of it that way. If, if there's work that can be done on a show that is not considered writing and the producers are willing to do it, they're probably still doing it. But if there are producers who said, no, I don't feel comfortable promoting a show. Uh, No, I don't feel comfortable crossing the line between whatever is considered writing. Like I can't do these non-writing things without doing writing services, which is something that the Duffer brothers, for example, said very early on in the strike in, in citing the delay for stranger things. Those people were probably suspended very quickly, if not, post Labor Day. So again, this is a developing story. We'll have much more to come on this on THR.com in the in the coming days. But yeah, it's honestly what the big surprise that I've seen is that none of the deals, no writer deals have been force majeure that, that I know of. And that was expected to come a few weeks ago, but we haven't seen that. So as for why we're not seeing deals completely dropped or, or being cited as force majeure, remember when this is over. 
all of the AMPTP companies that are negotiating now together and are unified, they're going back to being at war with each other. And there's still a war for top talent and, con- and top content. So if you're hypothetically Dan Fogelman, let's say, right, behind one of the biggest broadcast shows in recent years with This Is Us, has a huge streaming hit with Only Murders in the Building for Hulu. He's got his deal at 20th Television, which is, of course, now part of Disney. When the strikes are over, he is going to be one of the people they call that says, go, 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 go. They want him in-house. They're not going to sit there and say, oh, we know you're a massive hit maker. We just don't want you. We're going to drop your deal. Same with the lower level writers that they fought tooth and nail to to sign. So that's what, what I think is at least a, a silver lining that we've seen so far in the strikes is that yes, deals have been suspended and what's going to happen for writers of all levels is the length of the strike is going to be added to the back end of their deals, but at least they, they will have something to go back to. Very nicely explained on the semantics of a thing that confused me and now confuses me less. Thank you, Dan. Number three. Up third, we discussed in the mailbag and obviously in the strike zone segment that the content pipeline is slowing. And now we're going to take a look at what's to come in what remains of September, which is traditionally a very crowded time of year with numerous fall broadcast launches. And well, that's not the case this year. So Dan, you sent me a very comprehensive list of what's coming. I'm going to highlight some of the bigger ticket items. So you've got the Changeling at Apple, Walking Dead, Daryl Dixon, season two of Welcome to Wrexham, The Morning Show, season three, The Other Black Girl on Hulu, which is an Onyx collective show, Wilderness at Amazon, the new season of American Horror Story at FX, the final season of one of my favorites, Sex Education on Netflix, The Continental on Peacock, Crapopolis, a show that's already been renewed for season three, finally debuts on Fox, The Irrational, one of the very few live action scripted shows that will be new to the broadcast networks this fall on NBC, plus the returns of The Amazing Race and Survivor on CBS, another one of uh, the TV's top five favorites, Starstruck, season three on Max, and The Boys spinoff on Amazon, Gen V. Dan, what are some of the things that you're really looking forward to this month, and how are you addressing the content slowdown? Fortunately, even if there is a content slowdown, it's also the uh, fall movie festival season. And so that just means that I've reviewed 10 or 11 documentaries premiering at Telluride, Venice, and Toronto. So there's been no literal content slowdown, but there definitely is some TV slowdown. There are things this month, though, that are are interesting. So, okay, let's let's do a little bit of self plugging. When was our chat with the uh, with the creator of uh, Sex Education, Leslie? Lori Nunn joined us in episode one thirty eight from October first, twenty twenty one. And when did Rose Matafeo of Star of Starstruck join us? Rose Matafeo joined us in episode 161 from March 25th, 2022. Those were two very, very good conversations and two shows that I also really enjoy. Um, I, I really, truly like the way Star Trek keeps sneaking up on me. I had not realized that another season was this close to being ready to premiere until I made this list of September premieres. So I was, I was very happy to see that as a thing to look forward to. And, uh, as I very frequently say regarding Starstruck, as fast a binge as you can handle. It's on max, uh, first two seasons, six episodes apiece, 21 minutes per episode, really fast, really easy. Um, there there are some big 
names this month as to whether there are things I'm looking forward to. I would say for the most part, the big names premiering are things I'm not looking forward to. I'm I'm more curious about this installment of American Horror Story because, and I believe we talked about this months back, whenever parts of it were announced. I, I'm interested in it because it's based on established source material. It's a single writer. And so those are kind of different things for the franchise. It might mean that it's going to be a more consistent and less crazy season, uh, plus Kim Kardashian. So it's got that going for it, which is peculiar. Uh, so yeah, I'm not really looking forward to that. I'm not really looking forward to uh, uh, Peacock platforming Mel Gibson and the Continental. Uh, I have some level of curiosity in it because the John Wick films are good, but the actual show itself does not seem enticing to me. Maybe it will be good. Who knows? Um, I'm curious about Gen V, even though I'm not the biggest fan of the boys out there, but I'm a big enough fan to be curious about it. Uh, But no, most of the things that I'm interested in this month are the things that are returning that are among my favorites. So Starstruck and Sex Education are, are very clear examples. I'm always looking forward to new seasons of Survivor and uh, The Amazing Race. Some of the indications about the structure of the new season seem positive. Uh, This, speaking about The Amazing Race, uh, they're going to be doing 90-minute episodes, which I think is always a boon to the show. Apparently, they are returning to commercial travel after having been uh, on charter planes for the past few years. So I would like to believe that that will bring back some of the travel aspect that the show has lost in terms of the mechanics of travel. Like, I don't think we're ever going to get back to, I don't know, people missing flights and, uh, and teams getting separated by whole days, kind of the things that were central to the first couple seasons or people fighting their ways off of planes in first class, which is a thing that we haven't seen in a long, long time. But I, I like travel being a part of the show and the the vagaries of travel being part of the show. So I am I'm definitely curious to see what that ends up looking like. And then there are the little things. There's a uh, Michelle Wolf comedy special that is going to be on Netflix in uh, on the 12th. I'm always interested in her. I think she's extremely funny. Uh, Netflix has also uh, Wrestlers, which is from some of the creative team behind Last Chance You, which is a show that I've spoken very positively on repeatedly. Uh, so far, I have not had the time to get to wrestlers, but uh, maybe maybe for next week's podcast, I'll say some words about it. Uh, and maybe for next week's podcast, I'll say some words about The Morning Show Season 3, which, um, yeah, I, less said about that, the better. Um, but yeah, there. Look, you look at the schedule, and I don't think that that many people are going to be looking at weeks and going, my God, there are four shows I want to watch this week. Where am I going to find the time? But I think that without any question, there are shows that people will want to watch. And some of the shows that turn out to actually be decent may surprise people. And that may or may not be a tease of uh, the Critics Corner segment when I say nice things about shows that you don't necessarily expect me to say nice things about. Number four. Up next... With the strike lingering on and no signs of when talks will resume, we return to our season in review segment for a supersized, let me stress that again, a supersized discussion of the recent finales of Justified, How To with John Wilson, Dark Winds, and What We Do in the Shadows. Returning to the show this week is friend of the five and Rolling Stone chief TV critic, 
Alan Seppenwall. Alan, thanks so much for joining us again. Always happy to be here, guys. Always glad to have you. Uh, we got a couple of requests when the Justified City Primeval premiere launched, asking if we might have you on to talk about the show in general. And then at the end, I told a couple of people on Twitter, ah, maybe when it's when it's done, we'll have Alan. And uh, and so this will give us a chance to talk a little bit about Justified and then a few other shows that have reached their end. I believe I warned you we were going to talk about how to with John Wilson, what we do in the shadows, and maybe season two of Dark Winds. But if anything else finale e comes up, uh, feel free to to bring it up, Alan. Well, you know, Dan, if you recap a finale in the morning, you've recapped a finale. If you recap finales all day, you're a TV critic. I don't that's know. A, that's a reference to a television show that we're going to talk about. <laughs> so yeah, so uh, consider this to be your friendly warning that we are. Definitely going to spoil ending plot points of Justified and what we do in the shadows. That's for sure. We may not spoil Dark Winds just because I think mostly both of us just want to tell people to watch Dark Winds. And then I guess we're going to spoil How to with John Wilson, but I don't really know if it's a spoilery show. Well, I mean, certainly the thing that happens at the very end of the finale is shocking, but no. it's. I mean, it's a shocking story, but it's not like it's a plot twist or anything. No, because that's not what the show is. Exactly. So we might spoil things that happen, but trust us, this for the most part is going to be us talking about TV shows that we like. And because these are also TV shows that Leslie does not watch, it's very possible this segment is going to be just Dan and Alan chattering. We're not really sure if we can fill the time. We've never really done this before, but... Uh, Podcasting, not an audio medium. I See, now, thanks to uh, your publication and its uh, controversial story about Jimmy Fallon, now I'm really looking forward to episode three of Strike Force 5, which is going to be just fantastic. <laughs> Previously, it was going to be nothing, but now I'm psyched. I've unfortunately heard that I think they may have recorded all of their stuff already, <laughs> or a lot of it already, and even if they haven't, I can't imagine that. Oh, God, no, of course. <laughs> no, no, there's not going to be a conversation in which the other four were going to sit down and go, hey, so uh, Jimmy Fallon, not so good to your staff, I hear. Have you been listening to that? No, the idea of like that many comedians talking at the same time just kind of gives me hives, especially since I find a couple of them incredibly funny and several of them not at all. Ooh, okay. No, we're not letting you off without saying, I mean, obviously one of the ones you don't find funny at all is Jimmy Fallon, but who who else? I mean, I Kimmel's okay. I, maybe I've I've overstated it. And Colbert, I used to love. I kind of feel like he's lost his fastball when I watch the CBS show. I've just sort of shrugged a lot of the time. So that's three right there. Okay. Uh, like what I can tell you is that based on the first two episodes, I mean, there's no question that of the five of them, Fallon was the least capable of participating in witty banter. For whatever reason, and I'm not actually sure what the reason is, Oliver is significantly more restrained. Now, whether that's because he's all British and stuff, and that's just how he operates, or whether he's not as enamored with the idea as everyone else, he is easily the, the second least communicative person. And then the other three are mostly just kind of bantering and being funny. That's It's, it's extraordinarily mm. loose. It it has no structure whatsoever. Fair enough. It might amuse you. So anyway, as I was saying, let us begin with Justified City Primeval. And uh, its finale was last week. But of course, TV's Top 5 took the week off. So uh, we did not talk about it then. I want to begin by asking you from your perspective as someone who does weekly recaps, but also as someone who, you know, gets comments from people and is part of conversations on Twitter. My perception 
has been, and this is just my bubble and adjacent bubbles, that while critics were extremely positive towards the show when it premiered, the audience reaction was maybe a little more mixed and tepid. What what has your impression been of how people have been responding? No, that's pretty much it. Um, I feel like for the most part, the audience did not really take to the new characters. They seemed especially disappointed in Boyd Holbrook as Manziel, the bad guy. They felt he was kind of two-dimensional and a poor kind of watered-down version of, of Boyd Crowder, the Walton Goggins character. I liked him more than that, and I especially really liked Ingenue Ellis and Fondy Curtis Hall. I thought they were terrific. I will acknowledge that the Detroit cops in general were kind of forgettable. And, you know, as you and I have talked about offline, Vivian Oliphant was kind of a mixed bag as Raylan's daughter. But I also felt that the show was kind of missing something when she left because Raylan was a lot funnier with her than he was with anyone else. And certainly that was a key component of the show is that Raylan is this guy who says these quippy things. And there was not as much of that as there was elsewhere. So I definitely got a sense of maybe not frustration, but certainly disappointment relative to how great Justified as a whole was whenever Michael Rappaport wasn't around. That's kind of my question based on the reaction is how much of it is sort of based on people, I don't I don't want to say repressing the less successful elements of Justified and only remembering the good stuff. But honestly, how much do you think that that mix reaction comes from people who were so satisfied with the way that Justified ended and and simply weren't willing to accept having to come back into it for anything less than that. Well, I think I, I don't even think that's so much the issue, although you and I are going to talk about that because I know you and I care more about finales than some people. So we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. I think it's more like I kind of look at Justified as the Raylan Givens show and felt that there were definitely times over the original run where there were too many other people getting in the way of that. And as great as I found Goggins, I felt sort of the the show's need to constantly keep Boyd Crowder in play while there was also like one or two big bads of that season and stuff going on at the marshal's office and cases of the week and everything else. The show could feel really crowded to me. Uh, sorry, not intending a pun of any kind. That would be, and, no, the, the pun would be Crowdered. I think we all know what the pun would have been. Okay, Sorry. The show could be overpopulated at times. It could be too busy at times. And so for that reason, as much as anything else, I really appreciated how streamlined City Primeval felt. But I also don't blame people who looked at the show as this big ensemble and especially this sort of big, you know, two lead thing where you've got Oliphant in one half and Goggins in the other. And sometimes they meet and they miss that. And certainly based on the response to the last sequence of the finale... Like, they finally got that. The question is, if this season had been Raylan hunting Boyd, would that have been satisfying, or do you think that they needed to take this break in order to set that up? The thing that made me happiest when I watched the first few episodes was that it wasn't that. That it wasn't Raylan and Boyd back together again doing their thing. Because that's the storyline that wrapped with We Dug Cold together. Period. Full stop. Ties back to the pilot. Done. I would have been perfectly satisfied if City Primeval had ended without any direct reference whatsoever to Boyd. I, I did not need that. So that's kind of that that's where I begin, is that if this had just been reopening the Raylan Boyd wounds, I, I didn't need it because that ended perfectly. I, I think a lot of the things that people had problems with this season were things that were always typical to the show. If the Detroit cops were boring, and they absolutely were boring, there's no question, were they any more or less boring than good old Rachel and Tim? 
Who? Exactly. So no is the answer to that question for anyone who is asking at home. There is no way that that they were any more or less boring than Rachel and Tim. Like, did it feel a little bit maybe more like a waste? Because come on, it's Norbert Leo Butts. Gotta let Norbert Leo Butts sing. It's perpetual character actor Marin Ireland doing unclear what in the second half of the show. I liked that character a lot at first, and then it just she just went a really uninteresting place. Yeah, I definitely lost the thread there. I've seen some other people speculating that like she was feeding info to Manzel, and if that was the case, that completely went over my head. Oh yeah, no, that that was not a thing. Well, I mean, maybe she was, but it was not a thing that I felt was was well enough established if that was the case. So so to me, yes, they were boring, but they were boring in a justified kind of way. Was Boyd Holbrook, you know, in, in my review initially, I compared him more to the Jonathan Tucker version of the bad guy on Justified, the sort of force of nature kind of version, as opposed to the more nuanced Boyd Crowder version. So that's kind of where I went with that. So kind of force of nature baddie versus nuanced baddie. And and maybe I would have liked a little bit more nuanced. To me, I was disappointed with what they did with Adelaide Clemens in the second half of the season. And I thought that she was kind of the element that was missing to give that character more of a soul. They kind of lost out on that because they didn't give her enough to do. And as rectified fans, both of us, I assume we are both slightly disappointed with that. Yeah. Although my memory, part of the issue is they're working off this 43 year old novel, I think, which I read years ago and really liked. And on the one hand, the main character of the the book who uh, Paul Calderon got to play, which was sort of a nice thing. And I call back to him playing the same character and out of sight is very Raylan-esque, so that kind of fit. But it means certain other characters, and hers in particular, Sandy, is kind of thin. So I don't know that they managed... They certainly could have done more with her in the same way that they gave uh, both Ingenue and Vondi's characters like so much more richness. They didn't do that for her. So you're right, that's a disappointment. I, I just think having her... Having her and a more substantive relationship between those two characters would have helped his character... Instead, he's basically just a jackass to her from the first frame on, and there's nothing, there's just really nowhere for it to go, unfortunately. I, you know, I thought he played it well, but there needed to be a little bit more depth to the character. And I guess what someone might say is that the true villain of the season was Raylan getting slightly older or something to that effect. I mean, that's the part I like the best of, about the season is sort of seeing Raylan. He has learned lessons. We saw it in the finale of the original show. He has realized. He does not always have to shoot people. He does not always have to manipulate people into situations where he can kill them and it would be justified. Uh, And so you get to this moment where he has the big showdown. And unlike in the book where Raymond Cruz uh, is sort of desperate to kill this guy, Raylan really doesn't want to do it and is so mad at himself for allowing it to happen that he decides to quit the marshals altogether. I thought Oliphant played that really, really well. And that was a that was a nice transition and felt like it could have been a nice ending for that character until we got to the epilogue. And I got to ask you about that because you said before you would have been happy if this season had never mentioned Boyd at all. So you get to that and you realize we are in Trample. We are in the place where Boyd uh, was last seen at the end of the series. How did you feel at that point? I felt okay with it on a basic level been happier not to have had Boyd mentioned yes I think I would have just because this just wasn't his story and it didn't need to be 
do I understand that you need to service fans to some degree? And that is why something like that comes up. Yes. So once they did that, you know, it fit. It also, unfortunately or fortunately or whatever, fit with the kind of super, almost supernatural nature of that character. (laughs) Like, like that is not a good plan that got him out of prison. It is not a smart, well-orchestrated Boyd Crowder plan. It is a simplistic, we have to get Boyd Crowder out plan. But even still, I liked the way it worked. I liked the way it set up the last scene. So I was fine with that. I think I was more fine than I might have expected if you'd told me, yeah, and we're going to get to the finale and Boyd Crowder's going to pop up. I don't know. Were you were you happy to have him back or did you need him back? I, I didn't. The thing is, I didn't feel like I needed him back. Like I was talking about before, I was relieved he wasn't there because as much as I love that character, the show leaned on him too much over the years and as we've talked about, the last scene between him and Raylene is perfect. It's one of the great final scenes in any show ever. And so, like, if you're going to bring him back, you're potentially undoing all of the great feelings of that. And so for me, I'm like, okay, this is a new story. It's good. And yet, the moment I realized we were a tramble and the moment we started moving towards Boyd addressing his flock, I could not have been more giddy about it. My notes at the time are just all in caps, you know, Boyd effing Crowder, all of these things. Like, I, because we got this other adventure that he was not involved in, I was okay with it. And I'm excited for the idea that if they make another one, it will be Raylan hunting him, in part because it feels like it would be a different Boyd Raylan story. Even though Raylan is a U.S. Marshal, we almost never saw him hunting fugitives. There were a few episodes here and there, like the one with Alan Ruck, but the show didn't really do that much. So if they're going to like do another season and that's the story that feels new enough to me for me to be okay, that it's, it's Boyd back again. But my question is just, is he, is if Boyd gets out and if Boyd is on the run and if that's what the others, the next hypothetical imaginary season is. And and I don't know that I want that to be what it is because that would imply that it's going to come soon. And I don't know that I need it to come soon. Like, I, I don't mind the idea of checking in on Raylan Givens every few years, but you can't suddenly check in on Raylan Givens five years from now and still have Boyd Crowder just kind of out there randomly on the run and Raylan kind of searching for him. So I, I don't know how you do that. Just to interject, nothing's coming soon. Nothing. <laughs> uh, wh- why is that, Leslie? What's, yes, what's wh- happening? Why not? <laughs> I thought you were about to break news about something happening in Hollywood. No, nothing's coming soon. Uh, I mean, what I would say is, here's the thing. They could come back five years from now, and that could still be the story. The idea basically being, like, Boyd has been successfully, like, out in the world all this time. Raylan looked for him for a little bit, or Raylan didn't look for him at all. He didn't answer the phone on the boat because it's, we don't know the ending. It's the Terrier's ending uh, in that respect. And at a certain point there's evidence of where he is and then Raylan gets pulled in and goes looking for him. I don't think you have to make that next year for it to work. I just don't know that Boyd for all of his brilliance has the wherewithal to be on the run any place interesting. Like I feel like he would just go home and hide somewhere where he was being protected by all of his minions. I don't know, like, for example, referencing a show that uh, I'm going to talk about in Critics Corner, I don't know that we're likely to get some sort of situation in which Boyd goes across the Atlantic and you get Boyd Crowder in France, <laughs> which, incidentally, would be perfectly entertaining. And both Boyd Crowder and Raylan Givens in France would be totally 
an amusing thing to try to do. I just don't get the impression that that's the way that the show would ever conceivably go. Uh, I believe the very first book with Raylan Givens, Pronto, involves him being like in the mountains of Italy. So you could do that. I would I would watch uh, Boyd Crowder, Raylan Givens and the Alps. That would be a, a fully a fully valid television show. There we go. Yeah. I've talked you into it. Great. Yeah, exactly. Bring it on. Let's let's get it. Let's get it going right now. Leslie, order that shit up. <laughs> Leslie's lips are buttoned. No, no one's. I mean, if, if they're ordering anything right now, I, it just took me so long. I have so many tabs open, and it took me a minute to find the tab that the that we're recording on and, and to unmute. There's so many deals that like it's like renewal. Some renewals are getting announced because it's like they probably had them done. Like this week, Mayor of Kingstown got renewed. I've been sitting on that for months before the strike started. There are so many things that are on the docket to do when the strikes are over. It's like, this is part of what keeps me up at night. Like it gives me anxiety thinking about all of the coverage that we're going to do, not just on when the strikes end, but when deal-making begins, it's going to be bonkers. And <laughs> renewals for this is probably part of it. I just don't, I, again, I, would again, I want to- nothing, Again, nothing is done. Like this is definitely not, that's at this point with the labor strife, if they do renew justified for another season, and I have no intel on this, but I'm presuming that they will based on what you guys have been saying. If they do renew it, this is not going to be a show that's going to be on an annual basis. That makes sense. And and definitely there would be no way under any circumstances that they would be able to, you know, the labor strife would have to end, obviously. They'd have to renew it. They'd have to shoot it. It's not well, first like they this- have to get through WGA and then they have to get get through SAG. And SAG can't do a pattern deal for WGA because they have a lot of <sighs> issues that are unique. I'll stop now. I'll see myself. So up. so but anyway, but it is it is true that regardless, we would not be getting a follow-up season until twenty twenty five or twenty twenty six. Vivian Which, Oliphant is going to be like 35 by the time this new season comes out. I don't think that's yeah. the way aging works. Well, well, she and and the and Millie Bobby Brown from Stranger Things, by the time that final season comes out, imagine. Well, I mean, they have to make sure that they can put together a 17-hour final episode of Stranger Things. So that's a that's a different kind of creature Isn't entirely. Is Millie Bobby Brown married already? I think she's engaged. Engaged to John Bon Jovi's son, if memory serves. They they grow up so fast. Well, no, see, but that's the one thing she has on her side is she stopped growing quite a while ago. So <laughs> even though she's obviously a woman, she's short. And so they can do some kind of tricks with that. Okay, so that is your point is that she's short. I got you. Vivian Oliphant, not hugely tall. No. So uh, I love the way you guys devolve conversations. <laughs> crazy shit. It is how the, these things go. Okay, so let's let's talk a little bit about Vivian Oliphant because I I don't know if I was more a fan than you were, but I definitely feel like when we were in the process of watching, I felt her absence more than you did, and I was so happy when she returned, just because she brought out a different side of Raylan, and the side that she brought out in Raylan was to me what the show was about. And so not having her for those three or four episodes, I kept waiting for her to come back because I wanted her to change Raylan. And there was a long stretch where she was not there and I was a little disappointed by that. I think that's definitely a part of it. I think also like just Oliphant was much more, I don't want to say he was disengaged with everybody else because he's too good an actor for that, but he was definitely a lot livelier whenever he was around her. You could, it was palpable how much he was enjoying getting to act opposite his daughter. So however good or not good you feel that she was, and I think she was an interesting screen presence, if nothing else, just having the two of them together brought so much out of him that was not there 
when he's wandering around with Norbert Leo Butts or, or Marin Ireland or whoever. Yeah, I think like like was she was she the reincarnation of of Meryl Streep as a 21-year-old actress? No, I don't think she was. And I definitely did find it off-putting for like 15 minutes in the premiere. But by the end of the premiere, I was already settled into the idea that whatever she is or isn't as an actress, her chemistry with her father, which was all that she was being asked to do, was completely genuine and helped ground the show in a way that I thought worked perfectly and might not have worked if you'd gotten an imaginary, well-trained young actor to play that part. I just don't think you would have gotten the same energy, but maybe you would because whoever they cast might have been a professional. Who knows? But it's even still, I liked the presence that she brought. Who was his daughter on Santa Clarita Diet? Was that Liv Hewson? Uh, yes. Okay. So, like, you can find a trained actor to play his daughter and they will get something good. But this was definitely, there was something there between the two Oliphants. And so let's see, what else was there that needed to be discussed? Um, okay. See, I would have been perfectly happy if Matt Craven just would have been the callback to the original series. Like that they go the entire time and that retirement party was the only callback we got. I would have, I would have thought, okay, that's exactly kind of what I want to tie these things together. Were you happy with that? I mean, you know, the, you know what the kids love? They love them some Matt Craven. Damn straight. Um, and I mean, they did bring back Dave Koechner and then very briefly Natalie Z as well. Like, I mean, that I did appreciate that they didn't feel the need to like crowbar in Nick Searcy or anybody else. And I do hope that if there's another season that he's chasing Boyd, they don't bring everybody back. Like, it's still mostly him going after, you know, Boyd with either a stripped down cast or entirely new people again. Um. I think you and I are going to differ on the Boyd thing. I just, for whatever, whether it's rational or not, I, I know that they should not attempt to follow up that last scene from the original show with more of Raylan and Boyd, but I was just so excited to see him again. And so I'll allow it. It's, it's entirely fair to like watching Walton Goggins playing that part and to, and to like the idea of those two actors being together just on a, on a purely narrative level, it's not necessary. And, and I of course fully agree that it was a, it was a definite relief throughout the season that they didn't find the need to shoehorn in random people. Like it wasn't that, uh, uh, one villain or another was someplace and someone said to Raylan, it's going to take the best sniper in the world to bring him down. And at which point Raylan could have gone, a sniper? Why? I know a sniper. I just don't remember his name. But also, I mean, he's wandering through the city of Detroit. Like, what if Neil McDonough happens to, like, you know, cross the street in front of him and he's missing an arm? Like, they could have done that. They, they didn't. And 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 I think they deserve a lot of credit for restraint for like seven eighths of the show. And then in the finale, they're like, yeah, we don't need to be restrained anymore. It's just not it's not what the fans have sat through these first seven hours for. Let's go nuts. Well, I mean, the finale is unrestrained in other ways as well. Suddenly, like Manziel turns into John Wick and he just guns down the entire Albanian mob single handed. So I, I think it was made pretty clear that the Albanian mob was not overly well prepared for the circumstance that they found themselves in and escalated. I, I think it was sort of a, it was their B team. They did not send their best people <laughs> is all that I'm saying, but poor Terry Kenny uh, doing, doing definitely um, seems like a very authentic Albanian accent to me. <laughs> I I guess, or something. I, I'm, not, I'm not, I'm an accent cop in many ways. Albanian is not one of them. So. All right. So then here's the larger question. Mm. I am generally a believer that like 
revivals need to have a really good reason to exist. Otherwise, you shouldn't do them. And most of them are mediocre at best. A few of them are good. Uh, you know, we had one earlier this year in Party Down. Do you feel that this, again, I hate doing this. Do you feel like this justified its existence? Um, yes. It, it like, did it justify its existence in a, this was a glorious and triumphant return for the justified brand? Absolutely not. But I think I said this in, in my review that that primarily its goal was to not desecrate the end of Justified, and I didn't think that it did. I, I thought that they did enough different things, that they moved the elements around enough, that they, for the most part, avoided the callbacks that would have been pandering and whatnot. So so to me, um, to me, it, it justified its existence as an eight-episode uh, enjoyable run of television and return to a character who I love. I, I don't know. Where, where did you feel on the justifiedification of it? I mean, I think that the thing that made it work was the fact that, A, the, the Raylan character arc that we talked about and how that then tied into the fact that, like, in 2023, it's a lot less fun to have a TV show about a law enforcement, a white law enforcement officer who manipulates the law whenever he wants to and often finds ways to, you know, kill people and make it seem legal. Um, and so they, like, I, they don't do a lot with it. No. But, like, even even in the first episode, when Ingenue's character is just kind of tearing into him in, you know, Keith David's courtroom and pointing out, like, all of these things Raylan used to do that we found super charming, but when you actually spell them out by a black lawyer in front of a black judge, seem kind of horrific. Like, I think they did just enough of that that I felt like it was sort of acknowledging, okay, we have we are in a different era now, and how does Raylan Givens work in that era? I thought they acknowledged it. I thought they didn't work with it. Like, I thought they absolutely, the first episode in particular, they, they made sure that they knew that you wanted for them to know. <laughs> that was yeah. what they did. They, they said, okay, we know you need this. We're going to do that. Subsequently, though, they didn't do very much. There was there was the good, the really good conversation with Anjanu Ellis where she made it clear to uh, to him, that to Raylan, that he was angry and that he has more latitude to be angry than other people do and, and that that was a particular position of privilege. I thought that was a good moment as well. And, and really, just again, I, I can't say enough of how good Anjanu Ellis and uh, Timothy Oliphant were together. So uh, yeah, she's the, the best like female lead they've ever put him with at any point in the, the run of the series, old or new. Which is not to take anything away from either Joel Carter or uh, Natalie Z either. I don't want to. I think they're both excellent for what they did. Sure, so. sure, sure. Don't forget Amy Smart. <laughs> I quite literally have. <laughs> I mean, not in general. I remember Amy Smart as a as an entity. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I could have gone on, which uh, again, though, that makes me feel like they could have done more for Adelaide Clements because the show has such a track record with the kind of quippy, clever, initially soft, but eventually tough as nails, blonde heroine or anti-heroine in the show. And I just don't think they gave uh, Adelaide Clemens that part. So fair enough. Okay, let us talk about one of the other three shows that Leslie doesn't watch. <laughs> uh, let's let's go with uh, let's go with what we do in the shadows. And so, okay, so spoilers coming for the ending. Um, one of the things that made you happiest 
in the first few episodes of this new season was the way that they treated Guillermo's transition to vampirism or lack thereof and the corners they did or didn't cut. Did you like where the season and that arc resolved and did it feel to you like an annoying cop-out and and basically an erasure of the entire season that we watched leading up to it? Gee, Dan, uh, which side of that argument do you land on? I can't tell. Sorry, did that come across as a leading question, Alan? I... Just a little bit, Dan. Okay, this is again going to be like me with Boyd, where I'm, I guess, a sucker. I Ordinarily, I hate when you know shows hit the reset button and undo things, but I thought that finale was so good. And particularly in the way that they depicted, like, they recontextualize the entire Nandor-Guillermo relationship. So that it's not that Nandor is, like, this oblivious, narcissistic, abusive dick who is, like, going out of his way to not fulfill Guillermo's desire because he doesn't want to lose his manservant. It's, no, Nandor has known all along that Guillermo does not actually want to be a vampire and will be miserable as a vampire and he's the only one smart enough to recognize about the Van Helsing blood and how that's caused all that stuff I enjoyed earlier in the season. And he's the one who arranges to turn Guillermo human because that's what Guillermo truly wants. I thought all of that stuff was lovely. And this is a show that I don't really need emotion from because it's just so funny and so stupid most of the time. But when they do that, and they've done it more and more over these last couple of seasons, I find it really effective in a way that like ultimately enhances the humor for me. And so, like, seeing Nandor figure this out, understanding what's really been going on between the two of them, and then hitting the reset button, I'm okay with it in the same way that I was ultimately okay with the return of adult Colin Robinson. Like, I love baby Colin. I love, you know, little boy Colin, teenage Colin, all of that. But at a certain point, I'm okay with going back to the status quo because the status quo is funny. And I think that they can do just enough with the idea that he was a vampire for a few months and then rejected it. And that will be a new source of humor. I I would have to believe. But the difference between the reset of Colin Robinson and uh, all of the stuff that you just said with Nandor is that the reset with Colin Robinson was built into an already outlandish piece of, of supernatural hijinks. And, and it was sort of a culmination of it. All of those things that you just say that Nandor realized Do you buy that that character realized those things? Yes, because I think we see periodically, I mean, I would buy it more if Laszlo had done it, but we have seen moments of insight from all three of the traditional vampires at different points over the run of the series. And especially, like I said, over these last two years. And so I believe they do it just rarely enough that I don't feel like they're hitting us over the head with it. But when they do it, I think it works for me. It's not like the show hasn't dealt with Nandor and his emotions and Nandor coming to terms with things. And he's done so in interesting ways. I just felt as if it was kind of a it was a only semi earned reset and that there was a lot of buildup to basically push us back where we already were. And also to undo a lot of the things that were motivating Guillermo as a character for four seasons. So that was sort of where I was a little disappointed is probably a strong word, but not overjoyed, I think is probably fair. Like I wasn't excited or overwhelmingly pleased by it. I was not, however, regardless of my initial, of my initial leading question, I wasn't really irate about the finale in any way. I just don't know if I completely bought it. 
How could you be irate about an episode that brings back your boy Anoop Desai? Uh, not necessarily for very long. I was I was figuring the Deus Ex Anoop Desai was going to be one of my favorite uh, whatevers, and instead they barely used him. Not enough Anoop Desai. That is my review of season five of uh, What We Do in the Shadows. I think it's it's your it's your prerogative to think that way, Dan. I just really want to participate and say Anoop Desai. That's all. Okay. Was was he one of your American Idol favorites, Leslie? I don't even know who that is. Anoop Desai, Anoop Dog. He was one of he was one of Randy's favorites. He sang New Jack Swing songs. He it was impresses me that you both know details about American Idol. Excuse me. Uh, one of us watched twenty seasons of American Idol professionally and religiously, and Alan watched an awful lot of American Idol before he finally no longer was forced to watch it. Yeah. <laughs> props. I don't know that anyone deserves props for that. <laughs> it's just one of those things. Uh, the one other thing I want to say before we move on, and maybe you've got more to talk about as well, is a couple episodes before the finale when they did the roast of Laszlo and the Baron finds out that Guillermo was the one who accidentally you know, lit him on fire back at the beginning of the series. When Guillermo opens the door again and it's light outside, he doesn't get it. Like, that is one of the funniest things I've seen on television in a very, very long time. That was extremely funny. No, I, there were long stretches of the season that I thought were brilliant. I thought the whole thing with uh, with the hybrid creatures in particular, but with each of those creatures, uh, was one of the most wonderfully messed up, brilliantly <laughs> executed things that the show has ever done. Those those creatures and their grotesque everythings Ugh. were truly fantastic. And, and it was one of those things where I kept wondering how far they could take the joke and I was very impressed by how far they were able to take those jokes. So it's a funny show. It's an extremely funny show. And I and and resetting is probably a safer way of doing it because it keeps a lot of the dynamics in place. Uh, look, I just don't know what they would have done with Guillermo eventually becoming a full on vampire. And ultimately, the answer is we never got to find out. So I, I don't know if that's a a minor disappointment or just a thing that they did as part of the storytelling. And it's all okay. Um, trying to think if there's anything else we need to talk about, about what we do in the shadows. Uh, God, I just love those, those hybrid creatures. I, you know, I would have been perfectly happy just with the Guillermo frogs, the mysteriously, uh, mysteriously hairy <laughs> flying Guillermo frogs. And then they, and then they raised the ante significantly. So oh much praise. I mean, just, and this is a show that does a lot with kind of uh, unobtrusive special effects because they kind of want to give the impression that it's kind of grounded in reality and that they don't have a huge budget. I thought they orchestrated some very complicated, very sophisticated effects in those uh, bits extremely well. So, okay. One last thing. How do you, this year it felt like they talked a lot more about the documentary crew and interacted with them a lot more are you worried that at a certain point Chris Diamantopoulos is going to show up as like a boom mic guy who has fallen in love with Nadia um well i mean now i am <laughs> i hadn't i hadn't thought to be before and uh i mean the idea of Chris Diamantopoulos he is so very much the kind of person who this show brings into its world so now you know that's going to happen um uh i don't i i liked I liked so much of what the show did this season involving sort of the the fear of exposure to the world and 
continuing with last season, the consequences of excessively brainwashing the human population. And, and so I liked the way they handled that. I thought that the episode with the news crew was was also extremely good oh, farce. That was incredible. Uh, and, and so... To, to me, the acknowledgement of the film crew is part and parcel with that. It's the, how is this all happening? How do these people keep filming these things happening? How do they live with themselves, etc.? So I, I think I was okay with that. But now you have me worried about Chris Dibontopoulos, who also incidentally is going to be appearing in a very similar role in Abbott Elementary in season six. So <laughs> basically he is filming every, he is part of the filming crew on every single mockumentary on television. I'm just saying the office set a pretty low bar. So anyone like he's a funny actor, as we saw in Mrs. Davis, which I know is your favorite show of 2023. So it's like it would not take much for what we do in the shadows to use him better than the office did. He is a he is a wild and crazy actor whose wild and crazy energy is sometimes extraordinarily well used and sometimes extraordinarily jarring. And you just have to get him in the right mode. He was really good as Robin Williams in that Three's Company television movie that no one remembers the existence of. I just wanted to mention that that was a thing that existed. Was that not on three, Lifetime? Not Three's Company. It was uh, Mork and Mindy. Mork and Mindy, yes. yes. Was that on three's... Lifetime? No, it was on NBC. And NBC, NBC, yeah. Yeah, it was... Uh, it was... Hold on. I'm going to drop a link to a photo of it in the chat here. Hang on a second. Yeah, he was he was really good. He he did a he did both simultaneously a straight up Robin Williams impression, but also played Robin Williams as a character in a way that I thought was fairly admirable. So anyway, uh, Leslie's now going to go off and try finding links and try finding links to watch this movie while we talk about the no, not going to happen. No, I I think I've pointed out that I'm behind on enough that if I watch that over some of the stuff that you guys are talking about, I'd probably be uh, flamed. Well, but, no, but Leslie, here's the great thing. Because as you mentioned once or twice, you are not a critic. You can watch whatever the hell you want. Damn straight. And if you want to watch a, uh, I gotta get, uh, it was probably mid aughts, wasn't it? Uh, hold on. I gotta go back. I, I have to go back to the other tab now. I was not <laughs> expected to have to answer more things. I did. The un- Sorry. The, the unauthorized story of uh, behind the camera, the unauthorized story of Mork and Mindy was a TV movie from the year 2005. Mid aughts. I, I stand I stand by my assessment. I, oh, and it's it's star co-starred Dan Feinberg favorite Aaron Hayes as Pam Dauber. She was she was also very good if memory serves. I there were a lot of good elements of it. Was it very good in general? I don't remember it being very good, but I remember it uh, having elements I thought were good. Now, all right, now I'm going down a rabbit hole here. Uh, you want to guess who played John Belushi? It's 2005, uh, Dan. What do you think? If it wasn't Jim, I'm not interested. So who was it? Tyler Labine. Well, that's <laughs> <laughs> that, that. That is entirely. If if you were to ask me who could play an off-brand mid-aughts <laughs> network television movie version of John Belushi, Tyler Labine might be the answer to that. <laughs> What a weird rabbit hole we've fallen down here again. Okay, let's quickly talk a little bit about John Wilson. So, uh, so did you know that that's where that cryogenesis story was going to go, Alan? Obviously. <laughs> you totally looked at that guy and said, hmm, I suspect things about his genitals. <laughs> oh my God. L- hold on, Leslie, do you know anything about what happened in the, the How To With John Wilson series finale? No, but what you just said was really jarring. <laughs> 
Should, should we should we what just summarize fuck? it for her, Dan? <laughs> I mean, maybe for our listeners who are like me and don't watch, because yes, otherwise, we, what okay. are you guys with, talking with, about? With the reminder that simultaneously, we are about to spoil the finale of How to Witch on Wilson, but also it does not actually ruin any part of the overall experience of How to Witch on Wilson. Alan, tell Leslie a little bit about what transpired in the finale of How to Witch on Wilson. Okay, so the episode is called How to Track Your Package. And the thing you have to understand about How To with John Wilson is he starts off with one idea and very quickly gets distracted. Wait, uh, sorry, sorry. That sounds a lot like this conversation, guys. Was it all, wait, was was it intended to be double entendre or was that just an unfortunate, horrifying coincidence? Oh my God, that had not occurred to me until now. Oh yep. no. Neither had oh, it no. occurred to me, so I- Oh no. I, sorry, it just ruined everything. Okay, okay so, so, so go back to tracking this man's package. Okay, <laughs> So John Wilson is like looking into how to attract packages. Somehow this leads him into exploring the world of pizza delivery. Then he decides to study up on organ transport. But instead of like the body parts, he goes to a company that transports like the musical organs. And while he's in the midst of this, he then goes to a pizzeria, an organ themed pizzeria that is like gigantic and filled with like musical organs. While he's there, he runs into a guy named Mike and starts chatting with him, and he finds Mike fascinating, and it turns out Mike is preparing when he dies to have his body cryogenically frozen. Then about a third of the episode is about John Wilson visiting the anniversary celebration of this cryonics company, learning all about cryogenics, meeting a guy uh, who works at the cryogenics company who has an obsessive spreadsheet detailing what is featured in every single frame of every episode of The Bachelor. And, you know, on and on. And then, (laughs) finally, he decides before he leaves, I think it's in Arizona or somewhere in the Southwest, he decides to revisit Mike and have one more conversation with him about, like, the idea of why he wants to be cryogenically frozen. And John puts forth the idea that, like, extending your life, the traditional way to do that is to have children. And Mike says he never wanted to have children And somehow from there, Mike gets into explaining that when he was a teenager, he was so convinced that he never wanted to have sex that he performed an act of self-surgery. And my God, I wish that this was a video podcast because (sighs) Leslie's face right now, you know, Stefan, when Bill Hader like needs to hide the fact that he's about to crack up. This story has everything. (laughs) Yes. This show has everything in every episode, and that is why it is great, even though it is at times horrifying. And that is the story that transitions into the final act of the third and final season of How To with John Wilson. I am very impressed with the fact that they were able to find the most shocking story on which to transition (laughs) into the conclusion of that show. But here's the thing, here's the thing. As as horrified as Leslie understandably is to hear it, and as horrified as Dan and I and everyone else who watched it were, when Mike started talking about it, the great thing about the scene and about the show is that it doesn't stop there. The conversation continues. John Wilson does not, like, sit in judgment of this guy at all. Does not, like, say, dude, what are you talking about? He has a conversation with him. He is empathetic to him. And by the end of the scene, even though it is still like completely dismaying that he did this, it's also really kind of sad that he felt like he was in a place ready to do it. And you understand him. And just like you kind of do with every weird person John has encountered over these three seasons of the show, this is just the most extreme example of that. But the great thing about the show is it's ridiculous and it's also really poignant 
and he makes genuine connections with these people, which is why he is able to get them to fess up about incredibly dark and seemingly private things like self-surgery. Absolutely. The show the show has all was always about either finding the mundane in the extreme or in finding the extreme in the mundane. And so this is a fine example of that. It's definitely still a moment that causes cringing. And it didn't necessarily feel like a story, at least narratively speaking, that summed up the entire run of the show. And yet it, it still felt as if that was sort of one of those, well, where do we go from here kind of stories. And 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 on those grounds, I kind of understood how that worked as a series finale. But I also thought that the the last few episodes were taking things kind of farther and farther afield from both the literal New York City that was the setting for most of the show, but kind of the show's comfort zones, uh, right down to the vaunted car explosion and a whole episode that was almost a Nathan Fielder show, not to be confused with this, which is technically a Nathan Fielder show since he's producer. Um, so yeah, what do you what do you want to say about sort of summarizing John Wilson, other than it's not all people self-castrating and you can still watch it without worrying about other people self-castrating. Yeah, that's that's really just the one episode. I mean, it's just, it's, again, there's two things I love about it. One is the just complete unpredictability of how, for instance, he gets from like wanting to learn how to be a sports fan to by the end of that episode, attending a convention for people, for middle-aged men who collect antique vacuum cleaners and realizing that this hobby is entirely about these guys, like missing their late mothers and trying to find a way to reconnect with them. Like there is a point A and a point B. And if you watch the episode, it's kind of logical, but it's still like, it feels like a miracle to me that the way each of these episodes is put together. And the other thing is just like, again, how simultaneously funny and sad it could be, you know, almost in the same moment. Like it's really an extraordinary show. I, I almost never write about unscripted TV and this is kind of sort of straddles the border between documentary and comedy, but this was just so incredible that I always had to make an exception for it. It was a, it was a beautiful show. It was a hilarious show. And sometimes it was a show that can make you cringe in your seat. Um, but anyway, I don't I don't know that we have, have done in these last five to ten minutes a very good job of summarizing for people why they should watch it. So just take our enthusiasm as the reason you should watch it, not any part of our description. And well, just, But that's a good question, though, that you raise a good point. Will this show rank on either of your top ten lists for best of 2023? At the moment, probably. And especially because, as, as rumor has it, there may not be a ton of content for the rest of the year, because I hear there's this strike. Two of uh, them, actually. Two? Huh. It's unprecedented. Uh, yeah, it's going to be right on the edge for me. Um, the first season was in my top three. The second season was in my second ten. Uh, it will definitely, it will not be any worse than my second ten. Um, if it ends up being only in my second ten, that's not a particularly big insult. It's a great show. I love me some John Wilson. Yes, and for again, if we've scared anyone off with the talk of castration, let me just say, A, that's only in the one episode, but B, it's like, I talked before when we were discussing what we do in the shadows, like among my biggest laughs in recent memory, this show has given me many of my biggest laughs in recent memory, and not just the scene of Kyle MacLachlan struggling to use his, um, uh, his Subway Metro card. 
I would describe that as less a scene and more a single shot that people magically focused on because it was so very perplexing. Yes, fair enough. But it was absolutely a thing that existed. Um, Okay, so let's talk quickly about a show that we also want to recommend and that has no castration and that did not provide any of your biggest laughs of the year. I mean, occasionally Dark Winds is funny. There was the whole running gag about uh, Jim Chee's like terrible space age polyester suit. How how much did you laugh about that? I smiled. I don't know. Okay. It, it was one of your biggest smiles of the year. For sure. Um, anyway, so yes, Dark Wind Season 2, six episodes, just wrapped up. Say nice things other than that Zon McLaren is possibly one of our various best actors. And uh, and people need to recognize that 2023 is the year of Zon McLaren. But that's where I was going to start, Dan. And now you've just told me I'm not allowed to do it. So oh, Okay, fine. Feel free to start with that then in that case. Okay, here's the thing about Zahn is it's not just that he is one of our best actors. It is that he is a star in this show. And sometimes like like these can be two different things. And I think we, we've seen this already this year with like Carrie Russell and The Diplomat. Like she was in The Americans. That is a great capital A acting performance. In The Diplomat, she is being a star where it's all about basically like her charisma her charm, her likability, the fact that the show makes absolutely no sense. It doesn't matter because you just like watching her. In Dark Winds, Zahn is kind of both. Like, it's a great dramatic performance. Joe Leaphorn is dealing with all sorts of, you know, repressed trauma about the loss of his son, uh, about his tradition, about his own sort of estranged relationship with his dad. Um, And yet also just a lot of it works because you just want to watch this guy on screen. The camera loves on McLaren. And there's an episode midway through the season where he has temporarily caught the season's big bad and is sort of forcibly marching him across the reservation, which is in Death Valley in the middle of winter. And there's a chance at any moment that they could freeze to death. And there's very minimal dialogue throughout that. Both men are terribly injured. They're just kind of stumbling around. And yet it is all just riveting because Zon McLaren is at the center of the screen. And so that is 100% where you need to start with that show. And I think it does a lot of other things very well. But it is like, here's this guy in his late 50s who it took the business forever to recognize his talent. And they finally have. And this is a great, great, great vehicle for that talent. Yeah, he, he's spectacular. And, and leaving absolutely everything else out of the equation Six episodes of season one, now available to watch on Max as part of some sort of weird, somewhat sketchy promotional relationship that people may or may not be getting adequately compensated for. We're not completely sure about that. Uh, But anyway, uh, yeah, six episodes, season one, six episodes, season two. If there was nothing else to recommend about the show and there are other things to recommend about the show, Zon McLaren is spectacular on this show. It is it is as good a star performance as there is currently on TV. Um, and you put that next to the absolutely hilarious wacky shit he gets to do on reservation dogs when he has the time <laughs> to be there. And then being able to anticipate whatever he's going to get to do in echoes at the end of the year. I have no thoughts whatsoever about echoes, but the fact that it has both Zon McLaren and Deborah Jacobs in it, uh, I am, I am there for that. If nothing else. Yeah, and the, the other th- among the other assets of this show, which, as, as Dan said, you can watch the first season on Max, which is, you know, a lower barrier to entry than having to get either a cable bundle for AMC or subscribing to AMC Plus, even though AMC Plus has a bunch of good things on it, um, is this, it looks incredible, like they get so much value out of actually shooting 
in and around Monument Valley. Um, it's a really excellent supporting cast. Uh, they've got great source material in these Tony Hillerman novels um, that in the original books are either about Lee Porn or Chi, uh, at least at this stage, but they're able to combine the two characters here. Um, the mystery this season I thought was great. It's sort of, it's confusing at times, but in a way that is like intentionally confusing, like a lot of good film noir, hard-boiled you know, crime fiction is. Uh, just good performances up and down the dial from both the, uh, you know, the indigenous cast members or guest stars like Jerry Ryan or, and uh, is it John Deal or John Dahl? One of them is a director and one of them was on Miami Vice. John Deal is the actor who was on this show. John Dahl is the director of uh, The Last Seduction and countless episodes of quality television. There you go. Okay, yes. John Deal, also a cruiser in stripes. So a fine career all around. I like that guy. No, it's I, th I thought the second season to me, the second season was significantly better than the, the first. I thought the mystery was much better integrated. I thought that there was a lot less need to explain things. Uh, the first season just had to lay a lot of groundwork, which is totally acceptable. Uh, but yeah, I, th I thought the second season was a fully realized version of what this show is supposed to be. And and yeah, I hope we I hope we get more of it. <laughs> L Leslie, is a deal for a third season of Dark Winds imminent? No. <laughs> Why not? What, what's going on that would prevent that? I don't know, man. <laughs> Excellent. Are there any other TV shows out that we want to talk about, or is that just about enough for one podcast? I, I don't think that we could. I mean, we've already talked too long. Much like you don't necessarily want to go with Raylan and Boyd after we dug coal together. I'm not sure we should have continued this segment past Leslie saying, I don't know, man. <sighs> well, then in that case, thank you very much for joining us, Alan. We're still a few months out, but would you like to give an early plug for a certain piece of literature that's going to be coming down the road, perhaps as a potential holiday gift? Oh, right. Yes. I wrote a book. I wrote another book. This is called Welcome to the OC. It is an oral history of the mid-2000s Fox teen soap opera uh, starring... Uh, Adam Brody, Misha Barton, Ben McKenzie, Rachel Bilson, Peter Gallagher, Kelly Rowan. I spoke to every member of the regular cast. I spoke at length with creator and showrunner Josh Schwartz and Stephanie Savage, a lot of the key creatives throughout, Fox executives, etc. Uh, I think it turned out really well. It's sort of, it's a great portrait of both what made that show special, but also the general challenges of trying to make any TV show. And especially like in that particular broadcast network environment and all the compromises that had to be made and all the wrong choices that were made. And everyone was super candid about the entire experience. When is that coming out? It is coming out November 28th, right after Thanksgiving. So, you know, you can put it on your Christmas list for anyone who you think would love it. I see what you did there, dude. I see what you did there, Alan. I, uh, and I you did. can pre-order now, right? Yes, it's available uh, wherever books are sold. And just look for, you know, Google Welcome to the OC, Alan Seppenwall, and you will find it. Awesome. And maybe you'll come back on the show and, and do an interview about about the book. And I don't know, maybe we'll get an excerpt of the, of the book for THR.com, too. I would love to come back and talk some more and plug my stuff. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, Alan. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Dan, we talked about some of these shows a, a couple minutes ago in, well, a long while ago in our last segment in our September TV preview. But this week's major new launches include The Changeling at Apple, Walking Dead, Daryl Dixon on AMC, the second season of Welcome to Wrexham on FX, 
Apple's The Morning Show, and the other Black Girl on Hulu, which is an Onyx Collective production. So what do you got for us? We know what you don't, and that's The Morning Show. And also the other Black Girl have not gotten to that. There's, well, and also wrestlers on Netflix and a few other things. There's really just, there's a lot of stuff, but you can see a lot of the uh, documentaries that I've reviewed uh, over at THR, some of which I've really, really liked. Uh, I really liked American Symphony uh, from Matthew Heinemann about John Baptiste. I really liked Copa 71 about the uh, Women's World Cup of 1971 that may or may not have actually happened. It actually happened, but it's kind of been erased from history. Evil FIFA, etc. So anyway, lots of lots of promising documentaries coming out. Um, and this week there are there are shows and they're variably interesting. Uh, the Changeling is on Apple and it is based on the novel by Victor Laval or Lavalli. I'm not completely sure. Uh, and it is adapted by Kelly Marcel. And I don't think it's a good show. Unfortunately, I think it is it is clumsy, clunky storytelling that probably should not have been an ongoing story at all. Like, there's no indication in the eight episodes of the first season that there's even a movie's worth of story in this. So the fact that there's an eight episode first season and that it covers barely any narrative ground and sets up a second season is a little bit infuriating for me. And the fact that it's spinning its wheels with a lot of heightened uh, child endangerment drama makes it tough to to really embrace for that length of time. So the, the premise of the show is that Lakeith Stanfield plays a used book dealer who falls in love with the woman, Emma, uh, played by Clark Bacco, who fans of Letterkenny will know as Rosie, but other people probably will not. But I was happy to see Rosie in a dramatic role. Good for her. Uh, they get married, they have a baby, and then after uh, the wife, mother, has to return to the workforce, because the entire thing is all about basically why everyone needs more uh, better paternal uh, parental leave policies um, and maternity leave policies that send women back into the workforce and away from their children in weeks rather than many months are not necessarily good for anyone. Um, but once she goes back into the workforce, she begins to have paranoid delusions or possibly real delusions, in which case they're not delusions, they're just suspicions, uh, that her baby is actually not her baby at all. And she does something very bad. And that forces her husband to go on a journey to try to get to the root of what happened. Uh, The book is based on a number of different fairy tale folkloric traditions, and the series is as well. it's it's not a it's definitely not for kids, um, and it's not particularly whimsical or folkloric or fairy taleish really at all. Um, I I got tired of kind of the earnest monotony of Lakeith Stanfield's performance. Unfortunately, I thought some of the supporting performances were good, uh, but I was constantly interested by the things that the show wanted to say about. Um, storytelling traditions about what we use fairy tales for about the struggles of being a, a mother in 21st century America, where you don't necessarily have the answers to parenting that maybe people had back in the day when parental wisdom was passed along from generations. I, I thought it had a lot of interesting things to say, but I don't know that I really enjoyed the way it said those things, but I think it's entirely possible that some people will get caught up in 
the confusion of the mystery and some of the thematic elements and will be more invested. I think also some people will check out almost immediately. I can tell you that the seventh episode, which is almost all the showcase for uh, character actor Adina Porter, it, it's a strange theatrical episode, basically standalone. I thought it was a really audacious episode of TV that connects very poorly in terms of momentum to everything else. Uh, but I thought it was interesting. And, and that's kind of where I stand on it is there's enough of worth to this series that I, I can, I can hope that some people will find worth in it. And that's, that's a good thing. So anyway, Continuing along, premiering this weekend on AMC is The Walking Dead, Daryl Dixon. And this kind of surprises me a little bit. It's a good show. It, uh, yeah, good. Let's go with good. I, I was going to go decent. It might be better than decent. Not as good as very good. It is the most I've enjoyed a Walking Dead property since probably season two, three, four, or whatever of the original show. It, it is definitely far better than any of the spinoffs. And there have been more Walking Dead spinoffs at this point than you probably remember there have been, uh, because most of them have been really bad and forgettable. This one is often very interesting because it does a lot of the things that I've always said that I wanted these spinoffs to do, which is to actually, God forbid, be different from the original show. And so the first thing it does to be different is that the show begins with Daryl Dixon waking up mysteriously on a beach in France. And well, that means things are obviously going to be different. And unlike the uh, season with Jeffrey Dean Morgan and Lauren Cohen that aired six episodes and did get renewed. So at least some people watched it apparently, or felt happy about it or something. I don't know. It actually has a very different sense of place. They did film it in France there are a lot of drone shots of the French countryside and of old buildings. It has a totally different feeling. They spend a couple episodes in Paris that feel different. And it's kind of great for that, that it actually, it has a different look. It has a different tone. In some cases, it has a different language because lots of people speak French, though, uh, Basically, Daryl Dixon stands around confused because Daryl Dixon surely does not speak French. Um, there are also some variations to the zombies. Uh, um, something has happened that has caused some of the zombies to become more erratic, a little bit faster, and to have blood that may be acidic. It makes them a little bit creepier. Um, so, And there are some good things that it does with zombies. I would say that that was my biggest problem with the last spinoff is that it was so repetitive in terms of what the walkers were like and what they did. And none of the makeup effects were all that interesting. It, it was just a kind of frustratingly repetitive season of television. This is not that. That does not, however, mean that it's wildly original. Basically the plot of this new season is the last of us in France. Daryl Dixon finds himself at a convent where he is introduced to a, a 12-year-old boy who some of the nuns, including one played by Clemence Posey, uh, think might be, well, they think he might be the Messiah because they're religious, but he might be the salvation for humanity. So basically, the, the boy is Ellie from Last of Us, um, and that goes right down to his origin story, which is identical to the origin story from Last of Us. And so you have this kid who might be the salvation for humanity, and it is entrusted to a, a gruff loner who doesn't like being around other people to transport the kid to a safe haven. 
it's the plot of Last of Us. So if it seems familiar, it's because it is, but it doesn't feel exactly like The Walking Dead. And so I appreciated all of that. Uh, the, the middle episodes in particular, the stuff in Paris, some of the stuff that they do with the Parisian settings and with what they can do with, thematically with the way that Paris is this city in which history and death are are built into its urban infrastructure, whether it's the catacombs full of bodies or just all of these old buildings, which are more evocative for being a Parisian ghost town, etc., it was fairly effective. It's it's not it do, it really does not rewrite the rules of Walking Dead. It just does a lot of the things that Walking Dead does at its best, does them well. So, if you've been waiting for a Walking Dead that you can get excited about, you can get a little bit excited about Walking Dead. Daryl Dixon, uh, to answer the question that people will always ask in these questions, yes, a hundred percent, you can just jump right in without having watched any of the other spinoffs, and I would venture you could jump in if you haven't watched the last eight seasons of of Walking Dead either. And I would say, honestly, that if The Walking Dead never interested you at all, but the idea of zombies in and around Paris interests you, you can totally just jump in. You'll be able to figure out who or what Daryl Dixon is without knowing him from Walking Dead. You can totally just jump in. It's no problem at all. So there's that. And then the last thing is, and I've mentioned it a couple times now, uh, I was really late to welcome to Wrexham, which is the story, which is the documentary series FX uh, documentary about uh, Rob McElhaney and Ryan Reynolds buying a low tier Welsh football club and attempting to uh, nurture the football club and its struggling town for promotion and whatever. Um, I was late getting to it. I got to it in recent weeks. Really enjoyed the first season, enjoyed how versatile the show was. You know, some weeks it's a commentary on Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhaney's celebrity status. Other weeks, it's a lesson on Welsh history. Uh, there was an episode that was done entirely in the format of a Sports Center episode. Some episodes focus on individual players, some focus on members of the community. It does a lot of things, and it does them for the most part well. It's a versatile show. Uh, FX has sent out four episodes from the new season. And again, it continues to be an extremely versatile show. The first episode is catching people up on, you know, what what the deal is with Wrexham and where we ended last season and where we are now. Some of that is a little bit less dramatic than it might have been in the first season because people who watched the first season already know where this season is going because the history has already happened. The soccer season is over. We know how Wrexham did if you actually decided to be a fan of Wrexham. Uh, But then they also find other stories to tell. And uh, the second episode in particular, which focuses simultaneously on an autistic fan and one of the players on the team who has just learned that his three and a half year old son uh, is autistic it was a beautiful episode of television. It, it absolutely made me, it made me teary for 20 minutes and it's only 20 minutes. The first episode's 40 minutes, lots of catch up to do. It it totally worked for me and hooked me on an emotional level. Um, and it's something the show can do. It can be very funny. It can be very exciting if you're a fan of underdog sports stories and it can get you emotionally. The uh, sixth episode, FX 
sent out um, a non-chronological episode, which is something that sometimes happens in shows like this when they want to make sure you see something that's really good. Uh, the sixth episode of the season looks at the women's team that is affiliated with the Wrexham Football Club uh, overall infrastructure. Another great episode looking at something tangential to the main story, but finding new characters, new excitement, new stories to tell. Um, yeah, I just I just really like the show. It's it's a show that does the things it's trying to do well, and there was never any excuse for my not watching it. This is exactly the kind of show that uh, that regular listeners know that Dan digs. So it was inexcusable that I didn't watch it in the first season. But now I'm all caught up. I really enjoy Welcome to Wrexham. You can catch up quickly as well. Strong recommendation for Welcome to Wrexham. Uh, a, a solid recommendation for Walking Dead, Daryl Dixon. I'm as surprised as you are. It's a decent show. And uh, Apple's The Changeling is ambitious. Uh, to me, it did not work in terms of its storytelling, but it's got a lot of ambition. And I, I respect it for that, even if I really did not enjoy the show very much at all. So that's what I got. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporters. Now see this newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV reviews. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little review thing. Those suckers help spread the word of mouth. Come say hi to us on all of your favorite social media platforms. She is reliably at Snoodit with two O's. I'm always at the fine print, F-I-E-N. If you have questions for future mailbag segments and you're doing well, we really appreciate it and want to hear your name mentioned on the podcast and whatnot, you can email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's TV's Top 5, the numeral 5, at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.